And I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to learn how to resolve relational conflicts this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 25 through 27 and verses 31 and 32. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, give, nor give place to the devil. 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. God in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the hope that we have in you when we place our faith and trust in you. And Father, when conflict and issues arise, we know that we can turn to you and trust in you to help us uh, resolve these conflicts. And Father, we praise you and thank you for this day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As most of you know, we're in the middle of our series, our fall series, that uh, is basically dealing with what we saw in the video, relationships whether that's with family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, even friends here at church, people we worship with, uh, parents that our kids play sports with or band with, whatever the case may be. And we're basically learning how much the Bible has to say about how to ruin relationships, which we do a pretty good job of, but more importantly, how to restore those relationships God's way. Uh, if you were here with us the first week, we talked about pride, and we learned over in 1 Peter 5, 5, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. And then last week, we talked about our anger, and we learned in James 1.20 that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we can basically summarize the, two, the first two weeks this way. If you want to ruin relationships... Just be full of yourself and use anger to get what you want. There's this, there's the, there, there it is, right there. Today, we want to talk about conflict, which generally involves two basic ingredients, people and problem. You put people and problem together, and you inevitably are going to have conflicts. And since all of us have relationships and all of us have problems in our lives, we're bound to have conflict. And it can be as simple as a, as a personality conflict with somebody you work with, somebody you even may live with, two brothers. I'm not talking about my family, of course. <laughs> conflict, personality issues. Or, or they just may even be, they may be bent on evil towards you. And how we handle those conflicts that arise within our relationships is one of the most important ways to live as Christ followers. So, if you're taking notes, you want to follow along, here's the first blank you can fill in if you want coming up on the screen. How to ruin relationships and restore them God's way. Pretty easy to ruin relationships. All you got to do is just continue to live with unresolved conflicts in those relationships. And you'll ruin them sooner or later. But if you want to restore them, then resolve conflict God's way. We live in a culture that is characterized by conflict. And in the midst of this culture of sharp words, of 
heated arguments, long-term silent treatments, and physical alterations. Jesus comes to us in one of the greatest sermons ever, Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. He says, hey, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now the contrast here is huge. In the midst of this raging sea, Jesus calls for an, an island of peace, if you will, a place where love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, a place, in other words, where love never ends, according to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. You see, as Christ's followers, we're called to be counter-cultural when it comes to dealing with conflict. We are to be characterized by Christ, not by our culture. Ken Sandy, in his book, The Peacemaker, describes the contrast this way. He says, peacemakers are people who breathe grace. They draw continually on the goodness and power of Jesus Christ. And then they bring His love Mercy, forgiveness, strength, and wisdom to the conflicts of daily life. God delights to breathe His grace through peacemakers and use them to dissipate anger, improve understanding, promote justice, and encourage repentance and reconciliation. Now, does that characterize you? Does that characterize me? Does that characterize our relationships? Or perhaps is, is there a relationship that you wish sounded more like that. I mean, just imagine with me what it would be like to be the kind of person who, who works through conflicts God's way instead of the culture's way. Imagine what it would be like to have relationships that are characterized by less conflicts and more peace. Listen, that's God's desire for those of us here who know Christ as our Savior and Lord. He wants us to show the world the power and the practical difference that the gospel makes in our lives and the difference the gospel makes in our relationships. With this in mind, I want us now to kind of focus on what Paul says, what, what Bill read for us about resolving conflicts God's way here in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is is all about the way Jesus makes people new in a very practical manner. The Apostle Paul here, he calls believers to, to live out this new reality in verses 1 through 3 when he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk worthy or walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Listen, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then Paul calls believers to put off what he calls our old self, our old nature, the old man, if you will, and to put on the new self, the new man. What we are in Christ now. In verses 22 and 24, he says this, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Listen, that's how our, our culture handles conflict and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created, to main, af, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, 
when you come to verse 25 here, which is where Bill started for us, it kind of marks a transition in explaining how this new life in Christ, this new self in Christ, this new reality, this new calling should be expressed now in our relationships. And there are basically three commitments that I want to highlight for us when it comes to resolving conflicts God's way in the rest of the chapter here of, verse, of chapter 4 of Ephesians. So three commitments to resolving. The first one is this. I must be honest with the person I'm in conflict with. I must be honest. Look at what Paul writes again in verse 25. I want to read it to you out of the English Standard Version. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. In other words, we're, we're all part of the family of God. Not only that, but we're part of a local family here at church. Now that's interesting that Paul first identifies honesty as a key factor to God-honoring relationships. And especially when it comes to resolving conflict. Now the command here that Paul gives us is pretty simple. One, since you put away lying or falsehood. Two, speak the truth with each other. Why? Because we belong to each other in Christ. So it's pretty simple. In other words, Christ-centered relationships do not thrive in the absence of a basic commitment to truth-telling. Truth-telling is a, is a key building block for God-honoring relationships. And the absence of truth creates greater conflict. I love what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes in his commentary, Darkness and Light. Listen to what he says. What makes fellowship possible is trust, mutual trust, mutual reliance, a feeling that you can trust one another, and therefore you can speak freely and openly one to another. But the moment the element of lying comes in, fellowship is destroyed. You are no longer free. You don't know how much you can believe or what you can believe. You do not know how much you can trust the other person. And so dealing with conflict, God's way, requires a simple, basic commitment to the truth. We must be willing to be honest about the problem we're dealing with. We must be, have a commitment to share with the person what has hurt us. And not only that, we have to be willing to deal honestly about our own contribution to the issue at hand or to the problem. In fact, one way we honor Christ in our conflicts then we can is we simply speak the truth. Most of the time, truth-telling isn't that hard for most of us here until, until there's tension between two people in a relationship. I mean, when we're angry, when we're hurt, and if someone asks us, hey, are you okay? What do we say? Yeah, we lie through our teeth, don't we? Oh, I'm fine. Everything is good. Yeah, man, great day. I didn't even notice it. Paul's telling us, stop lying about it. It did matter, and you're not fine. In fact, if you're angry or hurt, be honest and tell the truth, but make sure, listen to this, you speak the truth, in love. In fact, Paul talks about that earlier on in verse 15 of the very same chapter when he's talking about to the body of Christ, speak the truth in love. 
when we tell the truth, we can do it in one of two ways. We can do it in a hurtful way or a helpful way. And most of us are very familiar with the hurtful ways of telling the truth, yelling and screaming. But the Bible tells us to be gentle when we speak, to be loving and gentle when we seek to restore broken relationships. So not only do we, we tend to lie about the problem at hand to ourselves or to the person at we're dealing with, but because we're hurt and we haven't been honest about it with the person who hurt us, we start to avoid that person. You know what I mean? I mean, if we live with that person, we keep ourselves busy doing nothing really, in, in, nothing of significance. We, we leave early from, for work. We come home late from work, and we do that intentionally because we want to do anything to avoid talking to that person in our family about the issue at hand. If we work with that person or if we worship with that person, we walk the other way or we just we, we pull our, our smartphones out and we look down and we pretend we're checking email or text messages. You know, God forbid they see my eyes and we make eye contact. And if they do talk to us, we give them the shortest answer possible. In fact, do you think this is why they created caller ID? You ever wonder why they, call, they created caller ID? You know, with caller ID, we can ignore people. You can just let it go to voicemail. How many people do that? Am I the only one? Yeah, now why do we do this? Because we don't want to heal broken relationships by being honest about things. So we just keep avoiding the person. Listen, this is not the way God calls us to handle our conflicts. This may be how our culture handles conflicts. But as Christ followers, we are to be different. We are to be honest. We're to speak the truth in love. By the way, who do you think you'll have your worst conflicts with? It's going to be the people closest to you. In fact, notice this in your notes here. And here's why. The severity of a conflict is not related to the magnitude of the offense as much as it is related to the proximity of the offender. In other words, it's the people closest to you that can wound you the deepest. Listen, strangers don't necessarily let you down all the time. Family and friends do that. Random people can say nasty things about you on Facebook, and, and we can blow it off, but when it's your girlfriend writing nasty posts, that hurts. So expect your worst conflicts with those you love the most. And, the first, and the, so the first commitment to resolving conflict God's way is I must be honest with myself, with that person, and about the problem at hand. The second commitment is I must control my anger and resolve conflict quickly. You see, before I can resolve conflict with another person, I must first resolve the anger in my heart. We'll never be able to resolve conflict God's way if our anger is not in check. Now, we talked about anger last Sunday, so we're not going to deal a lot on this, but I want to talk about it a little bit again here because this is such a problem for, to be honest with you, all of us. Ephesians 4, look what Paul says here again about anger in verses 26, 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Then drop down to verse 31. He says then, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now please note, Paul didn't say you never get angry. 
We learned last Sunday there is such a thing as righteous anger, holy anger. So Paul doesn't say you never get angry, but he does say when you do, do so without sin, which he then defines as anger, in verse 31, anger as without bitterness, without wrath, without anger, without clamor, and without slander. You say, what are all those things? Basically, that's when your anger has taken on this deep, burning quality within you, such as resentment and bitterness and hatred, which is why Paul urges us to resolve conflicts quickly before our anger turns into bitterness. Now, as we think about conflicts, let's answer this question. Where do they come from? Where do they come from to begin with? Well, I'm going to give you three answers to that question. First place they come from is wrongs that are done to me. Wrongs that are done to me. The most obvious place conflicts come from are when people just do us wrong. Such as when someone cuts us off in traffic, so we give them the immediate justice of our horn. And then as we drive by in the stare of death. Or much more serious wrong is done to us. That causes deep wounds, deep hurts, and pains. So the first place conflicts come from are the wrongs done to us. But there's a second place. Conflicts also come from perceived wrongs done to me. A surprising amount of the time... The wrongs we think people do to us are simply perceived. Or if they are legitimate, they were not intentional. The real problem is we think people are against us. For example, I send a text message that shares my heart, and the person I send it to never bothers to respond. I get all bent out of shape about it. I get angry, and I assume they are thinking the worst about me because they haven't responded when in reality they just may be busy or perhaps they, they read the text in the car and, and you know, you're not going to text and drive so they're not going to respond immediately when they read the text in the car or maybe they just simply forgot when they got out of the car. There could be a variety of reasons. But we think they're against us. We think there's something wrong. And so we have this perception of this, a perceived wrong. But the third place conflicts come from is the one I really want to deal with, because this gets to the heart of the matter, the heart of the issue, and that is conflicts come from desires in my heart that are hindered or unmet. James asks a question in James chapter 4, verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among us? Now, if I asked you to turn to your spouse right now and identify the source of your conflict, that'd be rather dangerous. Most of us would have one answer. You. Most of the conflict and strife in my life is there because of you. But James is urging us here to think much deeper than that, to think beyond that person. Look what he writes now in continuing verses 1 and 2. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Hey, don't they come from your desires? Your desires, my desires, that battle within you. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, according to James, 
the reason we have conflict is this. I'm not getting what I want. Plain and simple. We have conflict in our world, in our work environments, in our home environments, in our church environments, within relationships, simply because we're sinful, selfish people who cannot let go of a desire that I want and I'm not getting it. It's going unmet or it's hindered. David Palson writes in an article, Getting to the Heart of Conflict, listen to what he says. James does not say you are fighting because the other person is a blockhead, because your hormones are raging, because a demon of anger took up residence, because humans have an aggression gene haywired in them, because your father used to react in the same way, because core needs are not being met, because you woke up on the wrong side of the bed and had a bad day at work. Instead, James says, you fight because of your desires that battle within you. You want something, but you don't get it. The biblical analysis is straightforward and cuts to the core. You fight for one reason, because you don't get what you want. Oh, man. He just cut my legs out from under me. And if someone hinders you from what you want, if you're like me, most of us here, our anger begins to burn at them. And we begin to resent them. And James says, you may even want to kill them. And this is what Paul calls bitterness and malice. By the way, James is writing to church people here. Isn't that interesting? Not a prison. And so murder is not just... It's not just literal here, but also metaphorical. And the problem, James says, is found in how controlling your desires are on you. Your desires have become so important to you, and so you hate anyone who keeps you from your desires being met. Nothing in you is supposed to be so important to you that it produces bitterness, malice, or hatred when you're missing out on it. And when those things are in your heart, listen to me, I would suggest that they, they are pointing to the fact that something has become an idol in our heart. So they then could kind of function almost like alarms within our lives. Ask yourself, what is it that I want bad enough that I'm willing to yell and scream, tune people out, abuse and neglect to get it. That person, you know what, they may even be at fault. They may have wronged you, but the bitterness points more toward a deeper problem in us. You say, well, what should I do with these desires? Do what James says to do with them. Pray about them. He says, you have not because you ask not. In other words, trust God with your desires and leave them with him. Now, all of this brings us back to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, 26 and 27, where he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So question, why then must I, should I, resolve conflicts quickly? Here's the reason. Because Satan seeks a place in your heart called grudge. That's why. And if Satan finds this place called grudge, let me tell you, he will enter and he will ruin your life with all manner of bitterness. So when do you know that your anger is turning into a grudge for bitterness to dwell? 
Well, one of the first signs is when you start replaying in your mind the wrongs done to you over and over and over again. You're driving to work and all you can think about is the hurt that that person caused you, the wrong they did, and you play, play it over and over. You go to bed at night and you can't sleep for the first 30 minutes because you're replaying that wrong done to you over and over again. When you're constantly reliving how you were hurt, listen, you are becoming a bitter person. And if you remember all the exact details of the wrong done to you because you're reliving it over and over again, you're becoming a bitter person. Listen, harboring bitterness is like trying to hurt the other person by drinking a cup of poison yourself. It doesn't work. So no wonder... Paul now says to us, hey, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. That basically means this, don't sit on your anger. Don't sit on it and allow Satan to turn it into bitterness. Instead, we seek to resolve our anger. We seek to resolve the conflict quickly. We talk about it. We work it out, not months later, but as soon as possible. You say, yeah, but what about don't let the sun go down on your anger? Does that mean we have to deal with our anger before we go to bed? Well, it can't literally mean before the sun goes down because, well, that would mean some people in Sweden could hold on to the grudge for three months in the summer, but in the winter they'd only have about two hours. Listen, it means we must deal with our anger must resolve conflict quickly, as soon as possible, as quickly as possible. That's the idea. Why? Before Satan finds a place called grudge in our hearts. That's why. I love the quote that someone said here. I don't know who, who, who said it. He said, let the day of your anger be the day of your reconciliation. That's the idea which brings us to our third commitment when it comes to resolving conflict God's way. I must demonstrate the kindness and forgiveness of God. Look again what Paul writes here in the very last verse of the chapter, verse 32 of Ephesians 4. This is the key verse. He says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So what does the kindness and forgiveness of God look like when it comes to resolving conflict, when it comes to restoring relationships that have been ruined? Well, what I want to do is walk you through five stages of conflict resolution with the kindness and the forgiveness of God as the, the driving force behind each one of them, as the foundation for each one. Are you ready? Five stages. You could call them five principles, five truths, whatever you want. We need all five of them. They're not, here we go. Number one, see conflict as an opportunity to live the gospel. First and foremost, see conflict as an opportunity to live the gospel. I want you to change what you see when you look at conflict in your life. Because most of us here, if we're honest, how do we see conflict? Something bad, something negative, something to avoid at all costs, like the Ebola outbreak. 
man, get me out of there. I don't want to be even near that place. And so we see it like a plague. Whoa. But I want you to see conflict as an opportunity to live out the gospel, the same gospel that saved you and changed you and redeemed you to live like Christ. And nothing, folks, is more powerful in showing others that Christ, hey, he makes a radical difference in my life and in my relationships than how we handle conflict. Nothing speaks volumes louder than that. So rather than letting conflict turn you into an angry and bitter person, let conflict be a chance to live the gospel and to treat people the way Christ treats you. And how does Christ treat us? Man, Christ is incredibly kind and tender-hearted toward us. Christ is gentle toward us, not malicious. Even when we were God's enemies, before we came to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, and, and we were separated from God, and we were His enemies, even then God did not get bitter toward us. He treated us with kindness and love, so much so that He sent His Son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins so that we could have the forgiveness of that sin. And now we are to treat the people we are in conflict with the same way that God treats us. We are to be kind, compassionate, and forgiving. And in doing so, get this, in doing so, the gospel is seen and tasted by others through the way that we treat them in conflict. Isn't that beautiful? Man, that's beautiful. That's what we're called to as Christ followers. So see conflict as an opportunity to live out the gospel that has radically changed your life. See it as that opportunity. Number two, overlook whatever offenses you can. In many situations, the best way to resolve a conflict is simply to overlook the personal offenses of others. Listen, dealing with every conflict, every offense, is not practical or even necessary. You don't have to comment on every little infraction. Instead, the Bible calls us to deal with minor offenses. I'm not talking about major hurts here, major wounds, and major stuff that has brought Big-time separation to a relationship. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about that the Bible calls us to deal with minor infractions, minor offenses. How? By overlooking them in love. Listen to what Proverbs 19.11 says. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Colossians 3, 13 and 14 says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive us, the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And so when we overlook the wrongs of others, we are imitating we are demonstrating God's extraordinary love toward us. 
and now we're fleshing that out to them. Psalms 103, 8 through 10 says, The Lord is compassionate, and He is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And so since God does not deal harshly with us when we sin, we should be willing to treat others in a similar fashion. Overlooking an offense is basically this. It's an active process which is inspired by God's mercy through the gospel. We've experienced the mercy of God in the gospel. His grace, and now it inspires us to overlook an offense in love. Overlooking an offense means to deliberately decide not to talk about it, not to dwell on it, or let it grow into bitterness in your hearts. Now, this does not mean that we must overlook all sins. There are times you need to speak up. There are times you need to confront. And there are times you need to just let it go. Number three, the third stage. Seek their sanctification, not your vindication. I don't know about you, but when I'm wrong... There is just something that burns within my bowels. This craving for justice. I want to see vengeance poured out on the person who has wronged me. You know what? And I, I feel good about that. I even feel almost godlike when. I'm repaying that vengeance and that justice. But when we, listen, when we hold the desire for vengeance, we are giving an opportunity for the devil to gain a foothold in our hearts because we are now trying to play the role of God, which is how Satan became Satan. That's what makes this next verse so critically important in our lives. Romans 12, 19 says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, Paul is telling us here, Look, justice will be served in that situation. Think about this. Every sin against you, every wrong against you will be avenged in one of two places, either in hell or on the cross. So therefore, I can leave it with God. Vengeance is his. And so I can put away all the wrath and anger that is pent up within me, which now frees me to seek their sanctification, not my vindication. In other words, to seek their good, what is best for them, to seek them on the journey and push them forward to becoming more like Christ. So seek their sanctification, not your vindication. Stage three. Stage four, initiate reconciliation through forgiveness. Initiate reconciliation. We have an obligation, the Bible says, to initiate reconciliation in a ruined relationship. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, in other words, if you're here at a worship service, 
like this one. And there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. In other words, Jesus is saying, you take the initiative. Don't wait for them to make the first move. And it doesn't matter if you're the offended or the offender. It's always my move. Reconciliation only takes place, though, by way of forgiveness. Listen, there is no other way to reconcile a relationship than through forgiveness. It is the only way. True forgiveness is truly a radical miracle through Jesus Christ. But there are no enduring relationships without it. And while reconciliation takes two people, it takes the person who sinned, has to repent, and you have to be willing to forgive. So reconciliation takes two people. But listen, forgiveness only takes one person. In other words, you don't have to wait on the person to repent before you demonstrate the forgiveness of God in your heart, in your attitude. Having an attitude of forgiveness is unconditional. And by God's grace, you seek to demonstrate a loving and merciful attitude toward the person who has offended you. Because remember, what's the alternative to forgiveness? It's bitterness. And when you forgive, bitterness is gradually eliminated and it's replaced with the kindness of God. Think of it this way. Bitterness is the fallout of an unforgiving heart. But kindness is the fruit of a forgiving heart. And so when you try to squeeze kindness from an unforgiving heart, you know what you get? It drips bitterness, and that's it. In fact, when you can't freely show kindness, you know unforgiveness is there lurking somewhere in the shadows of your heart. Know this, the fruit of your actions always tells the condition of your heart. So initiate reconciliation through forgiveness. Stage five, the last one. Don't give up. Don't give up. Give God's grace a chance to triumph. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? Listen, before you give up on a relationship, before you give up on that person who wronged you, give the power of God's grace a chance to triumph. Listen, you got to believe in the power of God's grace. Because if God's grace is powerful enough to triumph in your relationship with Him, then it's certainly powerful enough to triumph in your relationship with others. So don't give up because of so-called irreconcilable differences. That's our culture's way to deal with conflict. Irreconcilable differences. You're familiar with that in divorce courts. But it also plays out in all kinds of relationships beyond marriage. We go our ways because we just agree to disagree because of irreconcilable differences. But folks, listen to me. The cross of Christ was all about triumphing over irreconcilable differences in my life and in your life. 
And I'm so thankful for that. That's the power of the cross. And that's why I want to end by urging us to remember the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen, the only way to do all of this that we've talked about is for the cross of Christ to grow large in our lives. The reason some people can't forgive is the cross is so small in their lives. It seems trivial. It's not vital to them. And this is why some of you act like someone's wrong against you has just ruined your life. Really? Remember, you've been reconciled to God as a Christ follower. You've been given the eternity of glorious promises of God. And when you refuse to forgive your spouse or your friend of their sins, you are in effect saying that their sin against you is worse than your sin against God. Really? So for many of us here this morning, the one thing that we need most is for the cross of Jesus Christ to become bigger in our lives and for it to impact our relationships with people. Let me tell you, there are few things more painful than relationships that are characterized by a lack of honesty, long-term bitterness, and years of unresolved conflict. But let me also tell you, there is nothing sweeter than resolving conflict God's way, and that's only possible as we live the gospel by demonstrating the kindness and forgiveness of God in our relationships. Will you bow your heads with me? And let's pray. And let's ask God to move us to action. Let's ask God to convict us in our hearts and to show us in our hearts where we may perhaps have a grudge or bitterness or anger lurking or a relationship that needs reconciliation or a conflict that needs resolving. And let's move through prayer to God, to his throne of grace, where he offers us his grace and his help and beg him to help us, to convict us and even confess our sins. As the praise team sings, you respond as the Holy Spirit leads you to.